0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, August 13th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Christine Rosen is out today with me as always. Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, Bloomberg columnist and all around Bon Vivant, Eli Lake. Hi, Eli. How are you? thanks for
1: having me doing okay
0: so uh uh we love having Eli uh on uh, about about any subject uh today however uh is a uh, distressing uh subject and uh an entirely predictable subject unfortunately uh since we predicted it and i think Eli predicted it and anybody uh with a sense of history and eyes to see and ears to hear uh, could have predicted um, the imminent collapse of the government in Afghanistan, uh, uh, well ahead, by the way, of the August 31st uh, deadline placed. I guess it's not precisely an August 31st deadline placed by Joe Biden on the uh, departure of all U.S. forces, except for a small force that was supposed to protect the embassy or something. Um, <clears throat> Eli, you, uh, you had a sting, you have a stinging column today <clears throat> uh, in which you uh, pointedly asked the question whether uh, President Biden will be inviting uh, uh, the president of Afghanistan to his democracy promotion conference. Uh, This year, given the fact that he is unlikely to be the president of Afghanistan much longer.
1: Yeah, um, I wanted to highlight the dissonance between this Biden administration kind of optimistic rhetoric, which they have deployed in a part as a kind of political weapon against Trump in that they're the America's back leadership is back. They're going to stand for democracy and against authoritarians, and this is a useful way for liberals to talk about Tucker Carlson going to Hungary to meet with Viktor Orban, and it makes everybody feel good, but if you care about uh, you know, what he calls a democr- global democratic renewal, then this is you know the the decision of biden to precipitously withdraw 3000 or so troops from afghanistan with zero contingency planning um with very little notice to the afghan military um is contributing is the direct factor that has contributed to the extinguishing of a dem- of a fledgling or you could say emerging democracy in afghanistan and this is different than other kinds of scandal, or other kinds of sort of moments like this, such as the failure of Barack Obama to make good on his promise about the red line in Syria, we didn't really have much of a presence other than supporting you know, other fighters in Syria. This was our project. By leaving the way that we did, we are destroying it or we are aiding in its destruction or leaving it to be destroyed. And uh, I just cannot, t- I don't think that President Biden can say with a straight face that he believes in this idea of a global democratic renewal and then do something like this.
2: We need to update the audience <clears throat> on what has happened in the last 24 hours. When we left you last yesterday afternoon, <clears throat> word had come down that the cities of Herat and Ghazni had been sacked. Kandahar had been under siege. Uh, it had not yet been taken officially by the Taliban. That has since occurred. Um, We got word coming down from the White House according to senior officials who spoke with the Washington Post, or rather the New York Times, I'm sorry, that U.S. envoy Zalmay Khalilzad has been tasked, um, he's operating in Doha, uh, supposedly negotiating with his counterpart, although his counterpart with the Taliban has been hard to find of recent days for obvious reasons, negotiating with them uh, uh, some sort of a pact that would allow the, the embassy in Kabul to remain open and secure um, up to and including dangling financial aid and other assistance to the, quote, future Afghan government, which would presumably be a Taliban run entity. Why the Biden administration would want to essentially diplomatically recognize the Taliban having just by taken the capital of Afghanistan by force and ejecting the government that, is, that we support is utterly bizarre, but it's reflective of how deluded this White House seems to be about the nature and state of this conflict. Um, lastly, yesterday evening we got word that roughly 3,000 American troops are returning to Afghanistan not to secure the country. That's a lost game, um, but only to pres- to uh, ensure the proper evacuation of civilian and military officials from diplomatic outposts where they still are. Um, again, in my view, only to avoid the optical horrors that we endured in April 1975 with the fall of Saigon. They just don't want the images. That we were confronted with and the associated psychological maladies that plagued the country for the next, for the following decade, um, and I I think that's their only objective at this point. Um, we it, it, I don't I really don't think that there's a real full understanding of what's happening here in the White House and what's what it's going to do here. This is the the speed of this offensive. Um, and how it has shocked intelligence operatives. We got we, this came down yesterday too. That everybody thinks, you know, it would they believed it would have taken roughly a year for Taliban to conquer the country. They revised those estimates now to suggest that, Cal- that Kabul could be surrounded in the next thirty days and will fall before twenty twenty two. That's a shocking intelligence failure on par with Tet nineteen sixty eight. There really is no other parallel. How we missed this is stunning. Eli,
0: do you think we missed it, or no. was this? Okay, so this is basically Biden's like we're pulling out and they're like, "Okay, boss, whatever you say, I I, I, you're assuming good faith here, Noah, that I'm not sure that uh, that anybody deserves getting credit for having here. I think the decision, the alternative
2: that you're alleging is that the intelligence officials who pegged the Taliban's uh, successful reconquest of the country at roughly a year were simply lying. We're just lying.
3: But I don't but I never under I never really understood this line anyway, because that's not a good line for them either. We expect the Taliban after twenty years of fighting, we expect the Taliban to completely retake the country in a year. So so rest easy. I mean that's that's a terrible prognosis. A prospect not that was not, forestalled not what, by the presence what, of three thousand troops.
1: That's not what Biden was saying either, as of Couple of weeks ago, he was saying he doesn't think that Kabul will fall. You know that there's many more Afghan forces; they have superior weapons. He gave that ridiculous press conference a few weeks ago. Um, the the bottom line is this: unfortunately, um, the intelligence community is so vast, such a bureaucracy that you can produce estimates to pretty much say what you want. There are plenty of analysts who were predicting that there would be um, that the government would be in serious peril. Anyone who the military who was observing the haphazard way in which this was made, I mean, it's important to go back a little bit and to remember that, you know, Trump left Biden with a terrible kind of pseudo deal with the Taliban, which the Taliban was not abiding by and that Biden should have just said the Taliban isn't agreeing to it. So we're not going to agree to it. And, um, but stopped short of pulling out the remaining few thousand forces and kind of left this decision to Biden with this supposed May 1 deadline. Um, The first move of the Biden administration was to review Afghan policy. And they were in the review. And then in the middle of it, Biden said, we're doing this precipitous withdrawal, which gave uh, the Taliban, and and Fred Kagan has a very good piece in the New York Times uh, op-ed page today, that explains that this was at the beginning of the fighting season. There was no, that, you know, the Afghan security forces learned how to fight with the United States. So there was no contingency planning for what to, you know, for how to kind of do this once the United States left. And the fact that he sort of said, nope, we're gonna go out, we're gonna do it as quickly as possible. That was a surprise to Ashraf Ghani's government and the military. Um, All of that is what contributed to the fact that the Taliban was able to kind of get this momentum and implement this strategy. It is not as many of the uh, sort of end the endless war crowd is saying evidence there was always a house of cards. This could have been done in a way that would have given the Afghan military a fighting chance. Biden chose not to do it that way, and it's on him.
0: Right. Well, Fred Kagan's piece, and we should say Uh, Just to make note of it, that uh, Fred Kagan, who is a military scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, um, his father, Donald Kagan, uh, maybe the foremost American uh, classical historian of Greece, uh, commentary contributor of Longstanding, uh, died this week at the age of 89. And we mourn with Fred and his brother, Bob, uh, uh, Dom's death. Anyway, um, Biden... In Fred's piece, he says reasonable people can disagree about the wisdom of keeping American military forces in Afghanistan indefinitely, even at very low numbers. I and others have argued that the investment, including the risk to American personnel, is worth it to prevent militant groups from once again overrunning the country. But he says reasonable people can differ about that. And um, this is the point that Eli was alluding to. As U.S. military planners well know, the Afghan war has a seasonal pattern. The Taliban leadership retreats to bases largely in Pakistan every winter and then launches the group's fighting season campaign in the spring, moving into high gear in the summer after the poppy harvest. So we have been at war there for two decades. We know their patterns. A briefing of the president of the United States on on the status of forces in Afghanistan, including when he was vice president, would say, you know, it's the summer. That's like peak fighting season. If we're going to pull out, we should probably do it in the winter. Doesn't seem like that big a call, right? I mean, it's sort of like this is uh, Afghan War 101, That the Taliban retreat and when they're in retreat, that would be the moment in which to draw down and maybe not to draw down with a giant announcement saying, hello, we're drawing down. Here we go. We're going to leave. There's we're not coming back. There's nothing we can do because that sends two signals, right? Sends a signal to the Taliban to accelerate their offensive. And it sends a signal to everybody in Afghanistan to get the hell out of the way of the Taliban, because what on earth are you fighting
2: for? What, yeah, but Joe Biden has the soul of a poet, not really that of a strategist, right? So what he wanted was the big celebration on September 11th. He thought the 20 year anniversary would have been a great optical event for him to get out of Afghanistan, which means pulling out in the summer. That's bad poetry, by the way. that's <laughs> it's, like it's Edward Goldberg-Lytton poetry. poetry. I mean, if he has the soul of a poet, the
0: idea of paralleling the attack that you know the attack that started this war, uh with a bug out from the war not yet having been won would seem to be an insane juxtaposition to me. I don't know who was gonna be satisfied by that. Uh but you know Eli as a as a as a 20 year student of this um the disheartening quality here has to do with the fact that uh the minute that he said they were going to leave, the the clock was ticking down to the collapse of the Afghan government. Like I, 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 he kept doing happy talk, right. About how they could stand them. So they needed to fight for themselves. Now it was like, okay, you know, you're 18, get out of the house, rent your own apartment, get a job, pay your own rent. I'm, I'm done. And then, you know, uh, I mean, that was sort of the tone of it. Like, stand yourself up. You're a man now, you know, and 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 they're facing one of the most evil and barbaric forces the world has ever seen uh, who are like just waiting for them to move in to the apartment so they can rob it and kill and kill the 18 year old in, you know, as he enters for the first nights of sleep.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, I think, a fitting analogy.
0: Um, that's Edward Bulwer Lytton poetry too, but you know, but but of a different sort. Anyway, go ahead.
1: I mean, at one point, President Biden said he thinks that America's standing in the world will be increased as a result of his decision. When he, if you remember, when he made his speech announcing this, I think in April, he said, "I think we will be more respected in the world." That's delusional, and we don't need the intelligence community to tell us that. That's crazy. And he just had decided that he was going to do it. They were going to, you know, they were going to pick up on, you know, Trump's idea of doing this. They were going to pretend that the Taliban was adhering to this agreement. They were going to say their hands were tied. Whatever it was, he had made his decision without a care for the investment in the admittedly flawed but nonetheless elected government in Kabul, which is, a yes, it was a stalemate. Stalemate is preferable to a fascist gang taking over the country that is going to execute prosecutors, comedians, journalists, and it's going to be awful. And it's going to be on us because it was only a few thousand U.S. forces that was preventing it. And sometimes you just have to say, that's worse than what we have now. And it wasn't at this point that great an expenditure. I mean, if you take the whole 20 years, of course, it's more than a trillion dollars, but now it's 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 like we're what are we spending 3.5 billion on the next budget reconciliation for infrastructure that includes everything from gender to climate change? I mean, we can't afford to protect to have something that is not great but better than horrific and catastrophic. I just don't understand it. I yeah, the,
3: it's not just um, delusional. I think that that Biden <laughs> said that uh, this would it's in by some uh, uh, twist of magic. Um, elevate America's standing uh, in the world. Um, I think w- what he's done is open up a new chapter of American defeat and talk of decline um, uh, in, in terms of world history. Here, he this is a twenty-year effort that that w- had become a messy, qualified success. Actually, I think in a lot of ways, he turned it into an immediate failure. He, he, he has rendered, and, and don't forget, Afghanistan was the was the first military response of the U.S. to the 9-11 attacks. Uh, it wasn't uh, Iraq, which happened later. Um, he, he has uh, closed out that, that story and, and, and opened up a new one about um, American failure and American military failure and uh, loss of power projection um, that will have tremendous reverberations going forward.
2: Well, we do reserve the right to go back, and we may have <laughs> to exercise that right. Insofar as what we know is that the, according to NBC News, is reporting the Taliban, as we understand, has not renounced violence, has not renounced its ties to Al Qaeda, and um, intelligence officials, to the extent that they know what the hell they're talking about, do expect the reconstitution of terrorist elements that could export terrorism abroad, which is, a, hopefully, would be intolerable to American policymakers. I can't think of a more powerful illustration of the arguments that we make on a regular basis that the modest investment in American forces deployed in to deter conflicts abroad is well worth the cost considering the alternative which is a lot more war and a lot more sacrifice of American interests with a with an alacrity that seems to have stunned just about everyone um uh, you know notwithstanding the the historical revisionists who would retcon you into believing that everybody knew this was gonna happen.
1: Um, We should spend a little bit of time just explaining that that line of argument, that it was inevitable, mm -hmm. is crap. Pure crap. Because it hadn't happened until we decided to leave the way that we did.
2: Oh, and the way that we did. Don't don't believe
1: your lying eyes. Don't believe what's happened in the last few months because it was always gonna happen, we can assure you. I mean, it's just nonsense and um, it should be swatted down. And, and, and you know, to a certain extent, part of the blame here is that I think that Biden understood, as anybody who's a political observer understands that the Republican party is no longer going to be a bulwark against this kind of surrender and retreat. And that right. because Trump wanted it and the, and Trump's the leader of the party, that you have some very good people like Tom Cotton, but this is no longer the George W. Bush, John McCain Republican Party. It's the Donald Trump party, and so he was able to do this, and he really only had to contend with a few Republicans and a few Democrats with of conscience, and and people inside the military and the, you know sort of you know inside the national security bureaucracy. But that's it. He did not have uh, another opposition party to sort of check him in this way, the way that Obama had in you know in in two thousand and eight two thousand
2: and nine maybe but this That's- is something of a wake up call briefly um, what we the the images that we're seeing out of out of Afghanistan now with the intact modern civilian and military infrastructure that is being taken the number of vehicles that are being taken a- operational helicopters offensive weaponry that are now being requisitioned by the Taliban. Nobody you know, who is being honest with themselves and others could say this is the right way to do it. Now, we're going to be subjective, subjected to arguments that will you know, sound a lot like, you know, communism would have worked if it had only been tried right. If retrenchment would work if I had done it right. Right. We'll hear that. Fine. But how many nationalists have to look at this nationalists on the right and, and retrenchment advocates on the left look at this and say, you know, this is, this, is, this is an abject disaster. The public isn't appreciating this. Where are the parades? Where is everybody who is going to say, oh, we're thrilled to be out of Afghanistan come what may? It's just not happening. They have to be unnerved by the stony silence that is, being, that is, that is the response from the American public watching this disaster unfold.
0: But this is, this is where the parallel to 1975 and the fall of South Vietnam is pretty exact, which is to say that there was a small band of Americans in Congress and in Washington who spent a year and a half arguing almost fruitlessly that we needed to do what we could to stand up the South Vietnamese government, if only because we had made a commitment to tens of thousands of, or more South Vietnamese people who worked for us and were there for us, aside from everything else, aside from the geopolitics of it, that, you know, that we had we had gone into that country, we had changed the nature of its political dynamic, and that we couldn't just bug out and pull out. And, um, and the simple fact of the matter is that nobody wanted to hear this. And the situation in Afghanistan is vastly superior to the situation in Vietnam in in 1974, 1975. Um, you know, uh, the, the Taliban remain, you know, remain a kind of brigand force. They're going to take the country over. They ran it for six or seven years in. You know, in in the '90s, but um, that is not really who they are. The North Vietnamese had a country from which they were, you know, operating as a, you know, as a, as a, as an intact government and military and all of that. We are, we have literally, basically handed the keys to the Taliban, whom we've been fighting for twenty years for no evident good reason other than that one person who has very bad foreign policy ideas and always have, wanted to stand there and say, I ended this war. I mean, okay, so Donald Trump had this deal with the Taliban that said that on May 1st, 2021, we would remove our forces, or whatever the hell that deal was. Like, what deal of Donald Trump's did Joe Biden feel that it was necessary for him to ho- maintain and hold up?
2: What yes, deal the of Donald Trump? What the <laughs>
0: moratorium. Yeah, right. I mean, what deal of Donald Trump's d- did Joe Biden think was prima facie, like something that American, you know, the American polity required him to remain, you know, remain attached
3: to? None. But not only that, as as uh, Fred Kagan's piece points out. Um, it's not as if the Biden administration stuck strictly to the May one deadline anyway. so they so they weren't honoring the letter of the Trump deal uh, anyway. so so if if they if they were already willing to extend the deadline, um, why not extend it in, a, to, in in a way that that um, might have prevented the the catastrophe with, that we're seeing now. I mean By the the way, I would ar- yeah, I would argue ahead, that the yeah. US retreat
1: from Vietnam was not as bad as what we're seeing right now because at least then you had President Ford and Henry Kissinger pleading with Congress not to cut off all the funds and everything like that at least there was like an effort there was an orderly transition that over 3 years to get the US out of South Vietnam it wasn't it wasn't done this way there was a chance that you could have you know you know had some you know, economic assistance to South Vietnam. It was really the, the radical it was the Democratic Party in Congress after the Watergate elections that did this. This is the President of the United States who has decided that it doesn't matter. I mean all these stories now are like he's resolute in his position. He thinks he did the right thing. What? You are. you're, not, you're impervious to like anything that's going to happen, especially since he was saying before that he didn't think Kabul was going to fall. It wasn't like I'm prepared to accept whatever comes. I know it's sad, but this is what we got to do. It was I don't think it's going to happen. They have more weapons. They're more, they're the Afghan military is bigger than the Taliban. You know, I, I don't want to hear all these Cassandras. Well, it's happening now, Mr. President, and he's still resolute in his decision. I mean, I don't know what to say about that other than that he he's lost his fastball, curveball, and changeup. I don't know what the hell's going on.
2: The um, <clears throat> speaker of the he's house has always had.
0: Has- He has always had horrible foreign policy ideas true. and now, and every one of his idiot foreign policy ideas was blocked by people at the table, rolling their eyes and changing the subject. And now no one can do that right? because he's the guy at the top. Let's split Iraq into three. Let's split Afghanistan into three. Let's split, you know, I don't know. Let's split Tajikistan. Who knows what the hell nonsense he blathered at the, at the, you know, in the sit room of the national security council when he was vice president president. We know the kinds of nonsense ideas that he promulgated when he was in in the Senate. He has terrible foreign policy instincts, and he now is the guy who can say resolutely, we are going to follow through. Finally, I get to put one of my ideas in practice. Let's pull out of Afghanistan on September 11th.
1: But you <laughs> know, a great John, idea. John, that's not even his idea. His idea in the Obama administration was to have the force structure that we have now in Afghanistan or had mm-hmm. in Afghanistan and have mainly just a counterterrorism force and keep them in sort of the ministries in a very small footprint. It was and he was against the surge, but right. his position 10 years ago was not just bug out, it was yeah, we'll have a small force there to deal with al qaeda and other Well, terrorists. we'll
0: have a small force there and will somehow magically and mysteriously divide the country yeah right and we'll divide it and create and and you know like like Sykes Picot we were just going to redraw the map of afghanistan with a snap of our fingers and change you know this this um extremely difficult extremely strange but uh country that has been a country for, you know, 150 years that no colonial power could really get their hands around and say, okay, we came in, we've been here for 10 years, we're just going to turn it into three. That's, that's, that's what we can but do this magically. Is, this the is Brits what we couldn't had. handle it, the Russians couldn't handle it, nobody can handle it. Clearly, it turns out that
2: we can't handle it either. But we can. This is that's nonsense. we, no, it, this is, we had we the can. Biden model. We had the Biden model. We had a small footprint. We had we were what we were doing there was operating drone strikes from behind, uh, you know, bases in in Bagram. We weren't on the ground ex- executing combat operations. The last combat fatality was in February of 2020. We had a very small footprint that existed only as a deterrent against this sort of thing, and successfully deterred precisely what we're seeing here by their mere presence alone, uh, right. leaving and, and operating over the horizon strikes, as we have, have proven insufficient to achieve the mission that they want to achieve, which is to keep this the, this government alive. But this is, it was, and, and the apathy of the general public, the general indifference toward this conflict, not hatred of it, which is the assu- the assumption on the part of people who are who are retrenchment advocates right and left, but just general kind of indifference toward it makes sense because it wasn't producing any casualties. It was a very low-cost conflict to prevent this sort of thing. And now you have, as I was about to say, the Speaker of the House calling for, for hearings now and all members briefing, classified briefing on what's happening in 11 days, by the way. God knows where we're going to be by 23rd of August, but that's what she wants. But that speaks to the kind of simmering political crisis that this is becoming. Nobody anticipated in the sophisticated set that anybody in this in this country with a with a with a, with a, a significant consist constituency would be anything other than thrilled to wash their hands of this conflict, and that is not happening. The opposite we is don't, happening. We don't know. They are sensing a lot of discomfort and a profound regret, and I sense it too. And it's not what they expected. I I, I hope you're right. I I don't
0: really think that you're right. I think I think that. Uh, Biden is probably more right than wrong that he can get away with this. The question is what happens now, not what's happened so far. I mean, what happens over the next six months? What happens when there are hangings in a stadium, you know, on cranes of people who are called, you know, collaborators or whatever? What happens when the schools, when all the girls in school are summarily kicked out of school? and uh, forced into burqas. What what happens then? What what will what will it how will Americans respond when the Taliban take over and
3: then do what the Taliban do? What happens th- what happens when there are intelligence reports of terrorist groups reconstituting in Afghanistan planning planning operations?
0: Right. Well that and that's okay, so we basically have two different issues here. One of which is we threw this away and 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 a and a regime uh of 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 unmitigated evil we have basically you know surrendered the country to and they're going to the first thing they're going to do is do the evil that they do the second part which goes directly to us national security interests and homeland security is what are they going to do to punish us specifically for having done what we have done to them over the last 20 years. What form will that take? And the one thing I think we can say is we don't really know what form that will take. We don't really know what kinds of capabilities they might be able to access uh, in terms of groups they might host and new techniques for disruption that are different from al-Qaeda's, you know, spectacular attack system. I mean, there are way many more things that are just as unnerving to people, oddly enough, as you know, as the Twin Towers falling. You know? What if everybody's bank account is drained? I don't know. I mean, I'm just sort of, you know, thinking aloud, but you know, there are there are a thousand different ways uh to do terrorism now that didn't exist in, in, in two thousand and one. And and so we have this we have this this could. This could be a slow acting poison that 3 or 4 years from now like what the hell happened here and that is where you start getting into Joe Biden will really rue that a history will tell on him. History will tell that what he did here was one of the most cravenly irresponsible things that any president has ever done. Um yeah. president, you know, like right? I mean, I
1: part- mean if you think about it in the 90s before 9/11 What was the big regret of the the Clinton administration was slow to act in Bosnia, and it was the failure to prevent a genocide in Rwanda. It was the failure to take action in other parts of the world to stop these tragedies. It started a whole element of kind of liberal internationalism associated with Samantha Power, of the idea that the United States has an obligation for genocide prevention. What we've done here is a form of the very least unmitigated massacre enabling, if not genocide enabling. It's different than failing to act to prevent something terrible. We have precipitated the horror. And so from this kind of all this humanitarianism that we associate with liberal internationalism over the past 25 years, what do they say about this? It is our action that has precipitated it. We are the catalyst of the horror that is about to come. And uh, you know where it's it, and in my view, that is categorically worse than failing to act in Syria or failing to act in Rwanda. As much as I criticize those decisions, uh, you know, for different reasons, this is worse. And that we will see, we are seeing right now, and we will see it get worse and worse and worse. And you know, like if they have that democracy summit in December. Uh, you know, it will be a farce. It will it will really be awful if they do that, because we will be seeing the repercussions in Afghanistan then, and it'll just be terrible.
0: Look, the central thing about 9-11 was nothing like 9 had ever happened before. And so you have that right. Albert and Roberta Wallstetter idea that, you know, in retrospect, you could look at this and say, well, they got this they got this report, uh, intelligence report on August 6th that said al-Qaeda determined to ta- attack inside the United States, uh, just as we had intelligence that suggested that there was going to be some kind of Japanese attack on American interests. But until it happens, you a- it's actually not thinkable. Like, it's thinkable and there are visionaries who can think about it, but it's impossible for people to respond to that which is totally unprecedented. The problem now is that nothing that the Taliban do from here on in is in remotely unprecedented, right? They 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 housed Al Qaeda, which did 9-11. They destroyed the statues of Buddha that had stood for fifteen hundred years. They 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 tormented women. They hung people in public. They hang, they were they were grotesque and awful and psychotic. To their own people, and then they 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 pervade this evil upon the world. And Biden will have no refuge in the wallsteader argument that until something really happens, um the notion of acting to prevent to prevent it is just too hard for the mind to grasp. And that's the real difference here that will give Biden absolutely no place to hide, no shade, no no ability to say I tried or I was, you know, thought I was doing right or whatever. Um, uh, All of that may or may not be true. I mean, about what what Biden was really is really intending here. But that is just the that is just the fact of the matter. Um, So let me just pull back and talk to you a little bit about Dan Senor's post-corona podcast. You've heard me talk about it before. Uh, uh, Dan, a contributor to Commentary, member of Commentary's board, uh, 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 a banker, an investor, a, an intellectual, author of Startup Nation, uh, created this podcast to try to examine what the circumstances would be economically, socially, politically, and spiritually even uh, in the wake of the end of the pandemic. And he has two episodes out that I want to commend to you. One I talked to you about last week. That is his interview with Mohammed al Ariyan, uh, former uh, number two at Pimco, former head of the Harvard Hedge Fund, uh, president of Queens College at Cambridge, one of the world's foremost economists, uh, who sounds the clarion call on fears about inflation, which he believe which he believes is a greater threat than people in Washington have yet really come to understand. And as we got numbers this week suggesting that. On the producer price index level of inflation, inflation went up almost 8% in July year to year. That is an astounding growth. That is that is like 1970s. We're approaching 1970s level uh, inflationary spiral here. And uh, you got to listen to this because, you know, more fecklessness from the Biden administration in dealing with and handling inflation. Their new idea is to, you know, beg OPEC to, to pump more gas so that gas prices go down, as though the problem here is not systemic across the economy in terms of labor shortages and uh, supply chain problems and all that. So that's the Mohamed el Arian podcast. Uh, today, he drops a new one with Matthew Pottinger, Uh, the former uh, Deputy National Security Advisor, and that is a conversation about China in which he and Pottinger talk about uh, what China is up to, what we know about how China is dealing with the Delta variant, and there are very interesting and weird stories coming out of China, Beijing, shutting down its airport over a health incident that we don't really understand. We still don't know how many people in China perished from the original coronavirus or whether or not their lockdown strategy was successful or unsuccessful. Um, And I think also an important element of this conversation is that China is now cracking down massively on its own tech companies, which of course have been a a source of uh, have uh, there's been a lot of American investment and hope and interest in the Chinese tech companies like Alibaba and others. And the uh, the government is really cracking down on them and trying to make sure they don't provide or present some kind of rival political power base. This is a fascinating conversation with Matthew Pottinger, the previous one of the Muhammad al That's Dan Sinora's post-corona podcast. Go get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher or wherever you listen to to your podcasts. Um so we were talking yesterday uh, about uh the squad and the budget and the infrastructure bill and the reconciliation package and I said that you know there was an interesting squeeze going on because the squad says no infrastructure bill without the budget bill. And now nine moderate Democrats in the House have sent Nancy Pelosi a letter saying exactly the opposite, which is there will be no budget bill without the infrastructure bill. They will not consider, they will not be interested, and they will not pay any attention to or, or play games with the budget bill if the infrastructure bill is not brought up and passed first. And this is a very interesting thing because, as I said yesterday, Democrats hold a three-seat majority in the House, not a 30-seat majority in the House, not a 20-seat majority in the House, a three-seat majority in the House. So while the squad may have six or seven or eight people they can count on, these moderates, nine of them, wrote this letter saying, get this to us or we are not playing with your budget bill. So the intra-democratic war on these matters is now on. And uh, I'm I'm there for it. I got popcorn. I'm, I'm I'm I got the lazy boy. You know, someone could bring me a you know someone could bring me a nice Slurpee, and uh, and I would really I really want to see how this how this plays out. Um, Noah, you uh, I know you got you got thoughts on this.
2: I don't actually know whether or not that that's going to have the effect that um, they want it to uh, necessarily. I don't think it's going to. Push Nancy Pelosi off the ledge here because she's trying to keep her members together, and progressives are issuing their own, you know, fighting words, and moderates are issuing their own fighting words. But her job is is to keep keep her caucus together, and keeping them fighting sort of achieves that in a in a weird way. Um, if they're disunited over what they want to achieve with this infrastructure bill, and keeping them engaged with each other, uh, you know, does give the Senate a little bit of cover at least to do what it needs to do, which is, according to Nancy Pelosi, what she wants them to do, which is to pass the $3.2 trillion, $3.5 trillion supplemental reconciliation package. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm perplexed as to what the strategy is here on her part, but she's got to keep everybody together and they all want everything and they want everything at once. So insofar as they can be focused on each other and not focused on, um, you know, running down the Senate, running down their colleagues in, in the upper chamber, which is where all the action is right now. Maybe that does advance her purposes, at least until the the rubber meets the road um, with regards to this reconciliation package. Whether they know whether it's dead or not, you know, let's don't leave it up to the House, right? Leave it up to the Senate.
0: Um, Eli, as the um, as the interpreter, as the great interpreter. I would say of the um, of bipartisanship uh, in the United States as as your as your alter ego, whose name I can't summon up from the from the ether uh, at the Dagan, uh, the David Gergen uh, Institute for Bipartisan Studies. Um, when you see this uh, very interesting dynamic, which is that Biden said, "I can work across the aisle." Here is a bill they worked across the aisle. They got 19 Republican votes for an infrastructure bill, uh, you know, trillion dollars or a trillion to an infrastructure. And uh and this is the this is uh, David the David Gergen Institute <laughs> Dream Come True. It's uh it's it's right. a restoration of the of American purpose. Will will this wonderful gesture toward comedy and 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 uh, pragmatism will this founder on the shoals of of the evils of ideological passion
1: well it's it's okay so so a, a serious answer to that question is there's an there's another dynamic that's going on which is that in a way you'd think that if you if Trump was if if you want to sort of say that Trump believes in you know kind of a new populist right why would he chastise republicans for voting for the infrastructure bill he was trying to do infrastructure himself this is part of the new right where we're no longer worried about you know budget deficits and penny pinching and things like that and we have to spend on these infrastructure and that's good for a similar dynamic is on the left, which is that even though the squad is in this kind of holdout that they need to get the $3.5 billion in addition to the infrastructure and it all has to be part of one thing, um, there's a contingent of their kind of base that was for Bernie that already considers them total sellouts for failing to demand a Medicare for all, for all vote, you know, as a condition of voting for Nancy Pelosi as Speaker. And there was a like sort of a, squ- a, a, a and it was a serious squabble. And then you saw that kind of in the Nina Turner uh, race in Ohio. And so, like, there's a sense where even though AOC and the squad represent the kind of far left, even if they were to deliver this, the country's in such a mood right now that the most active partisans could never even be satisfied with that, um, which you would think would create the, a Gergen-esque force towards bipartisan comedy because you're never going to please... You know that other side but in fact as we now know you know both parties are beholden in many ways to their uh radical fringes uh
0: anyway uh it's great to have you uh and Thanks. for uh, abe and noah and the absent christine rosen i'm john potthoretz keep the candle burning